Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Schulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Erica Weiss, who teaches at Tel Aviv University, here to talk about her new book, Conscientious Objectors in Israel, Citizenship, Sacrifice, Trials of Fealty, published in 2014 by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Erica, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thanks so much for having me. Well, we're glad to have you. So why don't we start like this? Usually, Erica, how does military service for most Israelis work? Well, for most uh, Jewish Israelis, when they get to be uh, in their later years in high school, uh, they get a lot of uh, recruitment materials um, and they're required to enlist in the military when they graduate at age 18. Uh, Men serve three years, generally. Women generally serve two years. And then sometimes, especially for men, they serve reserve duty um, about a month, a year until they're 45. It depends on the position, but that's more or less the the typical standard uh, military service that that almost all Israelis need to go through. Right. And so what are conscientious objectors? So conscientious objectors would be people that are required to enlist. So there are certain groups that are exempt from service. Um, Most of the Arab Palestinian Arabs in Israel are are not required to serve. There are a few exceptions. And ultra-Orthodox are not required uh, to serve, although that also has gone back and forth in recent years. Um, But conscientious objectors are people that that are required to serve, but who decide that they are not able to for ethical reasons. Right. So in a country that has sort of a a requirement uh, and an ethic of, of serving, um, these are people who, for personal uh, reasons of conscience, have decided not to serve. Is that right? Exactly. And there are there are there are many uh, contributing factors or political reasons that people come to this. There are conscientious objectors who are um, from the right, as they say, like right wing right wing politics, um, and there are conscientious objectors from the left. That that's a bigger group, uh, left wing uh, conscientious objectors who uh, object to. The occupation, who object to the treatment of Palestinians, the military policies, and and so on. Right. So, okay. So there are conscientious objectors in all kinds of countries and armies, right? Is this what? What about, what about this? Is an Israel-specific story, and maybe um, give us a little preview about what is what is the economy of sacrifice? <laughs> well, uh, what is specific to Israel is well, first of all, a lot of militaries in the world today don't have uh, a draft. Um, so only a few countries, uh, South Korea, Turkey, uh, Israel, Greece, these are places that have a required uh, draft. So the fact that uh, Israel is one of these few countries makes it specific to Israel as well. But conscientious objection, if you look at the history of a conscientious objection and kind of state recognition for conscientious objection, it's much more common in uh, countries with a strong Christian 
tradition, especially the what they call the historic peace churches. So your Quakers, Mennonites, groups like that, that have kind of a religious background to why they're or especially pacifist background to why people from those communities are not able to serve. So the fact that this is happening in Israel without this kind of religious background makes it uh, unique, makes it very challenging for them to evaluate what's going on um, with these individuals. And, and the reasons, their reasons for refusal are very specific to the Israeli case. Um, the economy of sacrifice is, uh, is this idea that in Israel, a civilian sacrifice for the state is very central. Uh, and one of the most common and respected ways, uh, to, to give to the state is through military service. So in a sense, uh, these conscientious objectors are trying to get away from uh, this procedure of, of, of sacrificing for the country, but in such a way that they don't want to separate themselves from the mainstream. So in going to jail for their beliefs, they're able to kind of replicate military service in a, in a dissenting way. Uh-huh. So, so they're not totally separating themselves from... Uh, Israeli society and what it means to be an Israeli. They're just, they see, they see themselves as doing it in a different way. Absolutely. They, they really want to emphasize that they are normative, <laughs> that they hold the same values as other Israelis, that they um, are not rejecting the need for sacrifice, for example, which is one of the biggest accusations against uh, conscientious objectors is that, well, it's probably not a reason of conscience. It's probably just that they're afraid or they're just, um, they have personal reasons not to want to serve. But this group is kind of saying, look, this is, that's not the issue here. We're willing to prove that the sacrifice is very important to us, and just as it is for the rest of society. And because of this, we're willing to go to jail rather than uh, military service, which is kind of the kind of a recognized equivalent. And this has got gained a lot of traction. This, this claim that they're making, they're saying that, you know, this is a substitute that's, that's been pretty accepted by a large group of uh, Israelis, even if they don't agree with conscientious objection. Many will still recognize that this is uh, an issue of conscience and that this is uh, not people trying to shirk their duties because of this willingness to go to jail. Uh, tell us briefly, what is the, the biblical story of the sacrifice of Isaac and, and how does it figure into your, your narrative? Well, the sacrifice of Isaac is uh, obviously has a very uh, long tradition. Um, and basically the story of Abraham taking his son Isaac uh, to be sacrificed uh, when God orders him to do so. At the last minute, uh, uh, God stops him and substitutes a ram that gets sacrificed in his place. This has been a story that's been used by Jewish communities. Uh, um, Throughout history, in the Middle Ages, uh, and since the founding of Israel, uh, it's been used uh, a lot in Israeli society as well um, as a metaphor, in a sense, for military service. And now this is, uh, of course, very controversial. You, you can follow the history of kind of military service and uh, um, how it's evolved in Israel by following also the use of this story of the binding of Isaac, if you uh, look at the early years, you have a lot of kind of very sincere 
poetry dedicated to the binding of Isaac and people saying, oh, you know, make me like Isaac. I want to be a uh, sacrifice for the state um, to more recent times where kind of there's a lot more criticism of uh, of military service, but done through the story of Isaac. So a lot of, for example, poetry written against Abraham or <laughs> accusing Abraham of being a, a homicidal maniac, for example, um, as a way to kind of criticize uh, the Israeli military and the, the tradition of uh, militarism in Israeli society through this story. So you can kind of follow the development of politics uh, through the use of this story as a metaphor for, for military service. Mm -hmm. I, I want to get into the bulk of the book, but um, first I just want to go over a little bit about what you did. Um, so you're the second anthropologist we've had on the show. Um, so I have a, a little bit of a background on what anthropologists do, but did you, um, did you do participant observation? Exactly. Tell us exactly. That's that's the kind of the backbone of anthropological research. So I came to Israel, and then in, in so much as possible, I tried to um, just spend time with conscientious objectors wherever they might be and whatever they might be doing. Um, so that's at home with their families, trying to to meet them uh, with their friends and in their everyday environments obviously to go to their activist activities and all sorts of things like that, but also really to try to understand the social context um, that they came out of in order to understand how they got to this position, how they came to such a radical step um, or what, what's considered in Israeli society to be such a radical step, uh, how they, they came uh, from different kinds of families, how their families reacted to that, other friends reacted to that. All of all of these things together to try to give a more a thicker description of uh, this social phenomenon. Right. So let's get into the chapters a little bit. So the first two chapters deal with one of the big groups that you spent time with, and that's combatants for peace. That's right. Um, these are. Um, this is sort of an older generation, but they were elite in the Israeli Defense Forces. Right. Um, tell us. Tell us a little bit about about the CFP. Well, this is a group, uh, there, it, there have been a few different uh, incarnations of this group or this type of group over the years. I think the first that was kind of a bigger organization was called Yeshkul. There is a limit, um, which emerged in the 80s. Um, and then in the later waves of refusal, there was a group called Courage to Refuse. And then Combatants for Peace is probably the latest and the, the most active today. Um, these are groups of generally elite combat soldiers who um, have decided collectively uh, to write letters of refusal um, and uh, and dissent and then further uh, their activism through these groups to try to encourage other peoples also to uh, reject military service and turn away. And, th and these groups were because of their elite military service obviously made a huge splash and got a lot of uh, press and reaction and uh, um, attention in Israeli society, in large part because of this uh, question of economy of sacrifice that I described earlier, that they had already proven their dedication through this incredibly difficult military service. So there really remains no question regarding their loyalty and their intentions. Because of that, there it was very difficult to throw accusations against them. Um, so they got a lot of credit for for their refusal. Right. Am, am I right that this group was largely um, Ashkenazi males, middle class? Um, it, it, was this is this something that comes from a privileged position? These are the people that can afford to maybe spend a little bit of time in jail. Absolutely. For all of these reasons, both in terms of 
their uh, real capital, um, their money that they can, uh, they come from the middle class. They can, they can go to jail for a little while. They don't have to, you know, come home on the weekend and uh, work a side job and support their, uh, to support their whole family and all of this. Um, but also in terms of their kind of uh, social and hegemonic capital uh, that they come from a place in society where no one's going to kind of question their their loyalty or question their belonging. I mean, if you're coming from a, a new immigrant group, um, people might say, oh, you're just not integrated into society. Or if you're coming from a Mizrahi background or a peripheral background, there are a lot of accusations that they might uh, throw against you. Um, which makes these groups a lot more vulnerable. Um, right. The army still had to grapple with these with these folks, right? Because they were they were elite. For sure. Uh, and uh, the army was pretty angry about this. Uh, that's for sure. They, when I spoke with members of the military, they told me uh, that uh, this had really really hurt them. That uh, that they almost felt as if. Uh, they had given them these, this group the prestige uh, that they then used against the military. In a sense, they had granted them this kind of uh, platform uh, that they turned against them, which they were very upset about. Right. Um, and, you know, I think some people might say that um, they're just trying to make a political statement with their conscientious objection what what did you find? Did they, in their hearts, really believe what they were what they were protesting? Well, for sure they really believed it. Um, that that from spending time with them uh, is without question. The idea that whether it can be apolitical, which was definitely expectation from the side of the military, they said like, uh, "Oh, this isn't conscientious objection. This is political." But when you look at these people's experiences, it becomes much more difficult to separate. Um, the idea of conscience from the idea of what is political. I mean, these things are uh, very tied together. Uh, they were reacting in a conscientious way to political events that they saw. Um, so I think it was definitely a, a matter of conscience. It was definitely sincere. Uh, and in certain circumstances, they had to make claims that it wasn't political. But that separation is quite difficult to maintain. Um, and I would even suggest that, that it's just not possible to, to maintain such a distinction, even theoretically. Mm -hmm. Chapter three moves us into an, uh, the next group that you look at, uh, the, anti uh, the feminist anti-militarism group called New Profile. What can you tell us about them? Well, this group uh, is made of... Um, it, it has uh, men and women uh, in it, but... Uh, people who felt unrepresented by um, groups like combatants for peace, because those groups were more uh, ex soldiers or especially ex combatants. And there were a lot of uh, young women and young people who had not yet been to the military who wanted to object and found that uh, their discourse, their approach to uh, refusal was lacking in these more um, masculine, let's say, or uh, even even militaristic <laughs> anti-militarist groups, um, mm -hmm. so they kind of created an alternative for themselves that was based in a more uh, feminist rejection of military service. Um, right. so it seemed like younger one of the group. Go ahead. Younger group, more feminist, more uh, mo more um, younger people 
especially. It seemed like one of the things they were saying was, you know, we didn't do anything except be born here. <laughs> um, is there any effort by the younger generation or the younger activists to get rid of mandatory mil- military service entirely? Well, I mean, among those groups, there's certainly a desire to do so. Um, I think that the, they would definitely like to see that happen. Um, but it's for them, it's not just the military service that's the issue. It's the way that kind of the military infuses all aspects of Israeli life. That was really something that got under their skin. The way that military jargon is used on a day-to-day basis um, as, as regular jargon. It just enters the discourse. It enters the, the language of common people. Um, the way that kind of uh, these kind of uh, metaphors of military service translate into life afterwards. It's not even it's not just these couple of years of service. It's also the way that these um, relationships continue. For example, for them, it was really important uh, or really bothering the way that um, gender roles in the military seem to translate so directly afterwards that, you know, when you go into the military, there are so few positions for women um, that are kind of the equivalent prestige of combat soldiering. So a lot of them were finding themselves um, that if they were going to enlist, they would be in positions that were more like secretaries and more um, teachers, mothering roles, or they, they, they saw it as mothering roles and that that would set up a dynamic for later in life. Um, and you see that in advertisements on TV of, you know, mothers waiting for their soldiers to come home, giving them cookies, doing their laundry. And they just did not want to enter into that kind of uh, gender dynamic at age 18. <laughs> right. Um, chapter four is interesting. It's about legal adjudication of conscience. Yeah. So these are, I don't even want to call them military tribunals. They're, they're pacifist tribunals. What, what can you tell us about them? They're pacifist tribunals. So actually, uh, almost all kinds of conscientious objection uh, in Israel is not legal. There is one exception, and that is if you're pacifist. Um, and if you are a pacifist, you can get an exemption, a legal exemption from military service in Israel. The catch is that you need to prove it to the military, um, <laughs> which is a very, very difficult thing to do, uh, especially, as I mentioned before, because these conscientious objectors are not coming from the historic peace churches, which have, you know, these pacifists, the uh, kind of institutionalized pacifism. They need to come and kind of testify to their own pacifism without kind of any community backing whatsoever, obviously to a very skeptical group of people. I mean, the military is it's the 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 committee is made up mostly of military um, personnel. There is usually one civilian member, but it's someone that the military picks. Um, so this is a very, very skeptical group of people. They're not going to tolerate any kind of politics. Um, they're not going to tolerate any kind of ideological message. Your pacifism needs to fit their idea perfectly. Otherwise, they're going to reject you. And they have they have very high rejection rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I was interested about is why do the conscientious objectors favor the metaphor of homosexuality? I think that just because it's so taboo to reject military service, in, in Israeli society, especially 
for this first generation of people who had been uh, in combat soldiers. And they felt as if they were hiding their true identity um, for so long, uh, their true identity being uh, dissidents or uh, people who reject uh, the military or don't want to be part of the military. And they had been uh, serving, for many of them, they had been serving for years with this kind of uh, conscientious burden that they didn't want to be doing this anymore, that they felt it was wrong. But for them and the way they had been brought up and their their social environment, it was just such a dramatic thing to uh, to actually go through with rejection that for them it was kind of like the metaphor of coming out of the closet, that they would have to go and tell their friends and tell their parents and tell all these people that were so close to them that they were about to do this thing or that they had done this military refusal and in many many cases um there was just a very very negative reaction so for them the metaphor of 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 homosexuality was very relevant and many even said like oh in israeli society today it just would have been so much easier for us to come out of the closet as gay than to come out of the closet in a sense as as the conscientious objectors right um, and so, and tell us finally, what, what are the uh, false promises that you talk about in your conclusion? And maybe as a way to set that up, um, maybe um, just go over the, some, some of the distinctions between uh, right-wing objection and, and left-wing conscientious, conscientious objection. Well, uh, left-wing conscientious objection is usually objection to the the military's activities, especially in the occupation. That's the, kind of their main um objection and there were even many conscientious objectors that were willing to serve in the military so long as they weren't asked to cross the green line inevitably they they were asked to and then they refused um right wing conscientious objection uh, and this is you know speaking very generally there are other kinds of rejection for example the feminist rejection i'm not sure if that's necessarily left wing although probably it would be um put there right wing conscientious objection would be people that refused to carry out the military's orders to, for example, uh, evacuate settlement locations, um, whether that was back in the days of uh, evacuating Gaza or uh, today when they evacuate uh, certain um, places in Hebron or uh, hilltop youth types. Um, there, are mil- there are soldiers that refuse to participate in those for reasons of conscience, and they're treated the same way by the military. Um, in terms of the... The false promises of the state, I mean, this is um, basically my way of taking all of these struggles of conscientious objectors together and, and claiming that uh, it, what, what they experienced is kind of a reflection of many of the contradictions uh, of the modern state. Uh, I think that the idea that um, military service can serve as some kind of ethical act uh, is a very problematic notion. The idea that it can serve as some kind of redemption uh, is a very problematic notion. That's something that they experienced. They went into military service with a sacrificial intention, really wanting to um, sacrifice themselves and, and do the right thing, but they found a much more complicated situation than they anticipated. Um, and, and ultimately, the state as well, the state, and perhaps especially the Israeli state, but I would say states in general, if they're offering 
um, redemption to people, if they're offering this kind of um, conclusion or closure for people or, or ultimate solution, it's, it's going to be a kind of false promise because it cannot be uh, reconciled with the kind of real politique um, reality of, of of international politics is basically what I'm what I'm trying to say in the end. Mm-hmm. How how does the uh, conscientious objection of, of of these Israelis impact how Israel is viewed by other countries? I think that um, well, it's gotten a lot of attention. I, I think um, I think that a lot of intellectuals were very supportive, especially of um, the first group, the the combatants for peace. Um, they were very impressed by people's willingness to uh, sacrifice um, themselves and their social reputation in something in in favor of something that they believed in. Um, I think that uh, intellectuals like. Uh, Slavoj Žižek and uh, Susan Sontag have uh, written explicitly and spoken explicitly in favor of these groups. Um, I think that uh, seeing the diversity of Israeli society and the diversity of Israeli uh, opinion has enabled people to to understand that uh, that that there's a lot of uh, complicated politics in Israel and that there are a lot of people on, on uh, all sides of the issues. I think that it has gotten uh, a, a good rep has given a good reputation to Israel, but I'm not sure of that. <laughs> How did you get interested in the topic? Uh, I was always kind of interested in, in these, the contradiction, I guess, of, um, People who are, are taking a, a stand in favor of individual conscience in such a collectivist society, uh, I think that this is kind of an inherent tension to conscientious objection because um, conscience is framed, or or the genealogy of conscience, if you look at it, is, is framed in such a way that it's really radically individual and based on notions of complete autonomy and and all of these liberal Kantian notions. Um, but in the end, when push comes to shove, it needs to be judged. It needs to be evaluated. And, that, and that's done socially and collectively. Um, so the idea of kind of the contradiction between uh, conscience, which is considered so personal and, and individual and internal and the kind of public evaluation of it, which is, you know, when conscientious objectors uh, declare their refusal, they get the, thrown into the public eye so dramatically. And everyone's talking about them. Everyone's deciding if it, you know, evaluating their conscience. It's 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 such a a moment of of contradiction. It's just it was really fascinating to me. Well, Erica, we've we've taken up a lot of your time. So, uh, any parting thoughts you'd like to share? And uh, what are you working on next? Well, my next project uh, that I'm working on right now is with um, religious peace initiatives. Uh, a lot of uh, the peace camp in Israel is extremely secular, and people are in that peace camp are extremely skeptical of religion uh, and uh, its impact on the conflict. So the left in Israel, one could say, is really quite anti-religious. But there are a few small groups of religious peace activists who are trying to kind of 
think through uh, the alternatives um, and hopefully that uh, this kind of um, religious based initiatives might serve as a better bridge with Palestinian society, which is, is also a very religious society. So there's something really interesting going on there. That's my new project. Erica, that sounds like a great project. I want to thank you for being on the show today. The book is Conscientious Objectors in Israel, Citizenship, Sacrifice, Trials of Fealty, published in 2014 by the University of Pennsylvania Press. The author is Erica Weiss. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.